Welcome to Democracy's Future, the podcast about the big questions and crises facing democracy in the United States and around the world. I'm Zephyr Teachout. And I'm Julie Sook. We're both professors at Fordham Law School. Today, we'll take up a question that many Americans have been thinking about in the run-up to the 2024 presidential election. Can a candidate for elected office in a democracy be constitutionally disqualified from being elected? The U.S. Supreme Court will be hearing arguments on that question with regard to Donald Trump very soon. But the United States is not the only country that has dealt with this question, which raises all kinds of issues related to what democracy is and the role of law in ensuring its survival. Today, we are going to hear from two guests who have thought extensively about the constitutional law of disqualification in constitutional democracies throughout the world. Tom Ginsburg and David Landau, who, with a third colleague, Aziz Hook, have recently published a very important article, Democracy's Other Boundary Problem, The Law of Disqualification. It's published in the California Law Review just this past December. Tom Ginsburg is the Leo Spitz Distinguished Service Professor of International Law at the University of Chicago and also a professor of political science. He's the author of several books, Democracies and International Law, How to Save a Constitutional Democracy, and Judicial Review in New Democracies. He's also the co-host of an excellent podcast about human rights called Entitled. Tom's co-author, David Landau, is also joining us today. David Landau is Mason Ladd Professor of Law at Florida State University and Director of International Programs there. He's a leading figure in comparative constitutional law in Latin America, having recently had a Fulbright Award to study the Chilean constitution-making process, which we've covered on previous episodes. He's the co-author of the book, Abusive Constitutional Borrowing, and a casebook on Colombian constitutional law. Welcome, Tom Ginsburg and David Landau. Thank you for joining us. Pleasure to be here. Thanks so much. So let's dive right in to your article on democracy's other boundary problem. And first, we want to look at why disqualification is important from the context of democratic theory. And perhaps uh, we could use the Trump case a little bit, uh, although there's so much more than the Trump case, to think about why in a constitutional democracy, a law of disqualification is both important and problematic. So the title refers to this thing in democratic theory we call democracy's boundary problem, which concerns the question of who gets to vote. And the problem is you can't really answer that question without already having an idea of who gets to vote. It's this circular thing about who's in the political community. And what we observed is that there's a similar kind of problem with not just, not just who gets to vote, but who gets to run. And democracies have all kinds of rules, most obviously age restrictions and things like that, about who can run, who's disqualified. And it turns out in our era, a major problem is backsliding leaders who actually would be a threat to democracy. So that kind of uh, need to make sure that the people playing the game are playing fair, um, but also recognizing that once you have mechanisms to disqualify people, those could be abused. That's really the central problem. I want to just zero in on the similarity between, say, the original boundary problem and the other boundary problem, uh, which is that 
the people who can already vote decide who get to vote. And I'm wondering if that's where you see the similarity, the disqualification regimes. It's really the people who already hold power with the risk of entrenching their power in oppressive ways. Is that where the similarities are? Or do you want to say more about uh, why you're calling it the other boundary problem? I mean, I think that they're similar in the sense that there's no point outside the system uh, through which to answer the questions. That's really what's what the way I, th- I think of the two problems as parallel. It'd be very nice if we had some external actor who could tell us what the political community was, who could tell us who was a fair player in democratic competition, but we don't. And so that raises the problems of abuse, but also the necessity of some kind of boundaries. You talk about qualification and disqualification. Can you just explain? sort of give us some examples of what qualification for running for office, uh, what kinds of things are qualifications, and then what kinds of mechanisms are used for disqualifying? You know, you think, I mean, obviously, to some degree, I think the entry and the exit conditions actually run together, right, if you think about it. Mm -hmm. But I mean, democracies, and you think about the U.S. as an example, have things like citizenship, as Tom mentioned, like minimum age, right? You have to be You have to be a certain age to run for office uh, under the U.S. Constitution, those kind of things. You think about disqualification, then, I mean, like a term limit is actually a a disqualification mechanism, right? Mm. As we show in the paper, um, you know, you've been in office twice before or whatever. You can't run again. Yeah. But then some of them have this very standard, like, quality, right, that are interesting that, you know, they they predate German post-war constitutionalism, but they kind of— come out of this idea of militant democracy, right? That you you got to protect the, the system from anti-democratic actors. Uh, dangerous thing to do, but but necessary. So, you know, you think about banning parties that are anti-democratic, right? Which is surprisingly common uh, around the world. Um, you think about impeachment, right? So one of the, we think about impeachment as removal, but it's also, you know, both in the U.S. and elsewhere, a, a disqualification tool. No, I I never thought of term limits as a disqualification mechanism until I read it in your paper. Uh, And uh, but of course, uh, then uh, there are many pathways that you've uh, mentioned, uh, including also just the provision in the U.S. Constitution that disqualifies uh, people who are not natural born citizens, including me. I immigrated to this country when I was four. Uh, And of course, this is the provision that made possible the birther movement. And so I just wondered maybe if we could just map out all the different things that you think belong in this same category as we talk about disqualification. I mean, there's a lot, you know, I think that's the the interesting thing. And and, and not only is there a lot, but most of it has analogs in other systems, which is great. Interesting. Right. I mean, you you have. um, So, yeah, you have term limits, of course. um, which most presidential systems have, right? Uh, for interestingly, not so much for other offices, but for right. for chief executives. Although I think there are always bills in Congress trying to impose term limits on members of Congress. I think Ted Cruz has been doing yeah, that. yeah, on, le- on legislatures, right. right? And some places have that. Some places have that, you know. But those are those are less common, and they raise different problems. I think, like they're. There might be a case for a legislative term limit, but but you lose something, right? You lose expertise. You lose. Uh, you might lose legislative power in a sense. And whereas I think people have settled on the idea that basically with presidents, you're in bad shape if you don't have some kind of limit, right? And you allow a president to run forever. I mean, sort of sort of my region of expertise, Latin America. You see too many examples 
right. of this dynamic, right? People running kind of over and over and over again and accumulating just enormous amounts of power. So, that, you know, that's one, but there's there's so many others. I mean, uh, disqualification after impeachment, which has only been done, I believe, three times in U.S. history and o- only for judges, right? Where, where, you know, usually even removed officials aren't disqualified because the the Senate doesn't go on to hold the vote, Um Hmm. That's another mechanism. And then, of course, now Section 3 of the 14th Amendment, right, which suddenly, you know, was quite obscure, but has suddenly become uh, a centerpiece of a lot of a, a lot of debate. And that one thing I think we show in the paper that's interesting is like that was at least originally a subset of a provision found in lots of places all over the world, like a basically a lustration provision, which says mm-hmm. like if you if you have some inappropriate relationship to a prior regime or an opponent of the regime, we're going to stop you from running for office for some period of time. And so it's interesting that that, that's that's being revived now, right? Although you're talking about, I mean, the lustration regimes are 20th century, mid-20th century and beyond efforts to overcome a dictatorial past. And it's very interesting how this thing that's been, that was written after the Civil War in the 19th century uh, is becoming the analog to something that I think has a very distinctive 20th century presence in constitutionalism. Well, they're similar and they're different. So disqualification under uh, Section 3 of the 14th Amendment basically is like an individual level thing for your individual bad behavior. It's like you're convicted of a crime, you can't run for office in many countries, not the United States. But but that kind of exclusion for something you did badly as an individual. Lustration tends to be because of your membership in a group. Uh, you were a member of the regime, you were a member of the party, uh, the Stasi or whatever. Um, and then the other distinction that we make is between backward-looking disqualification and forward-looking. So those two are mm-hmm. basically backward-looking, but a term limit is really a forward-looking thing. It's not that you've done anything wrong, it's that you're too good, and we think the system will be hurt if you're allowed to keep running. Um, so it's another axis or way to think about categorizing these various rules. So I have studied election law, and I have to admit, I did not know about lustration as a category. So can you just, just for our listeners... It's spelled like lust with a ration afterwards, right? So lustration. What's the history? Walk us through the history of lustration laws. Yeah, to my knowledge, it emerges once you have large parties, uh, political parties, which are really a 19th and 20th century phenomenon, and those party regimes uh, were really effective at taking over systems and running dictatorships. So the Nazi regime and the Communist Party being paradigmatic examples. And then the question is, okay, something happens, the regime changes. What do we do about all those folks? Um, A good example, another one would be the um, banning of the Ba'ath Party in uh, the U.S. occupation of Iraq, which turned out to be a disaster. And you see kind of the paradox here. You don't want those bad people around, but they're the only ones who know how to run the, you know, education system and the sewage system and all this stuff. So you kind of need them. So there's always this question when you have those things about how broadly to um, uh, lustrate, if you will, to, uh, to, to ban, you know, is it just the top leaders? And if you don't do enough, then the public might be upset. And that's actually explains a lot of the politics of Poland for the last decade or so, that they weren't seen to have done enough lustration of communists and so you sometimes, you, you know, this led the Law and Justice Party to be able to run on an anti-communist platform. Tough political problem to figure out. So now we're moving into the comparative realm, which I, is just a really interesting feature of your paper. 
Here we are in the U.S. contemplating a case about executive disqualification. Can you give just a few examples of executive disqualification that has occurred in other countries in the last 40 years? You know, it's interesting. Almost all the examples you can point to are, are, are difficult. Like we have a, we have a separate paper with, with Aziz uh, on impeachment. And one thing we show is like attempts to impeach are very common. Successful impeachments end up being pretty, pretty rare, right? Uh, that, that just the removal itself. Um, and, and a lot of the cases, what you see interestingly are that rules get kind of written almost in an ad hoc way to deal with particular problems. This is one of the things I think is disturbing, right, about these regimes. Um, so like Lithuania, right, they impeach a president, it doesn't say anything about disqualification, but they say like, you're, you're disqualified anyway. Right. So this you kind of one, one interesting example. Um, some of the other interesting examples around the world are examples where someone, you know, maybe the easy cases where someone's convicted of a, of a, of a serious crime, but you have a lot of cases that don't quite fit in that box or a little more complicated or where there's some discretion so you have cases from Pakistan, for example, right, where the there's a declaration that the prime minister, you know, the the basically shows up on the Panama Papers list, essentially, uh, and was involved in various kinds of potential corruption. And the the court declares basically under the constitution that this is someone that doesn't have uh, kind of proper moral character, right, and therefore is barred from running. Um, you know, for 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 a long period of time, essentially, essentially, I think the court said indefinitely, um, and so you you do face this problem of, you know, controlling particularly executives is hard. There's obvious risks of politicization, um, and yet you do see courts and other actors trying to do it, usually in a messy way. Do you see examples where there is a disqualification by the judicial branch? not acting wholly independently, but without the full backing of the legislative branch? Or does it tend to be when the legislative branch is pushing it and the judiciary rubber stamps it? Well, certainly we would have judicial cases about it because the person trying to run would often, you know, push forward on it. Um, South Korea is interesting, um, as Julie knows, that yeah, the constitutional court is involved in impeachment. Well, it's constitutionally required that the court review all cases of impeachment. Is that a common provision, by the way? It's uh, it, it's getting more common. It's a mm -hmm. pretty significant you know, minority or plurality of, of systems with constitutional courts is one of their powers that they have. And then the way the South Korean court actually exercises the power, instead of just looking at procedural review, they've taken on the role of saying, well, yeah, they did some bad things, but is this so bad that we should actually remove them from office? So they've aggregated to themselves the power to make that final call. And yeah, in one of the incredible. impeachments, they, um, they let the guy off. He later killed himself. And in the second impeachment, they went with it, and Mrs. Pak is still in jail and disqualified. So, Tom, I actually wondered, on judicial review, do you think that having courts involved in disqualification regimes is kind of a way of trying to get that external perspective that you earlier said doesn't exist uh, with regard to the boundary problem and the other boundary problem? Yeah, perfectly said. Uh, you know, 
we need someone who's neutral. And so there was this idea that constitutional courts would be neutral Judges actors. are neutral. Yeah, why not? And so in a way, what they're doing is drawing down on the capital of sort of neutral reputation or reputation for neutrality they've developed. And we're going to deploy it here. But of course, that also creates risks because you're drawing them into extremely political processes and you may squander some of that capital. Yeah, I mean, one of the systems that has an active judicial route for disqualifications is Israel, interestingly, right, where the court has the court has drawn on a set of, you know, kind of uh, loosely defined standards to say that various people are unfit, essentially, for, for office, not sometimes under criminal conviction, you know, because there's pretty clear Israeli law on that, but but often not. Um, and I think if you if you put that in perspective with the Israeli court, I think it's exactly that game that Tom's drawing out, right? Where it's it's a it's delicate. You know, you could argue that the, the courts played a, a useful role, but it has strain to some degree, right? I think the the court's conception of role. Yeah, if I could just comment on that, one of the reasons uh, that the Israel judicial role is so um, controversial is because they have decided they've declared that it's not just if you've been convicted of a crime, but if you've been indicted for a crime. You can't run for the Knesset. So that's a very broad and rule that they just made up. And this is one reason that Netanyahu and his coalition declared war on the judiciary the last uh, year or so before the October 7th uh, um, massacre. That was the major issue. Could he uh, sort of destroy the judiciary? And he's mad because he's been indicted. Now, one of the things this raises is how different countries think about disqualification for these three different kinds of roles, the legislative role, the executive role, and the judicial role, where art seems like it's been the most used in the judicial realm. Do you see real differences in how country systems think about disqualification based on the role? Uh, That's an interesting question. You know, I think in some ways... It's funny, you could argue that to some degree these things go exactly the, the kind of the opposite of what you would want normatively, right? I mean, it's, it's, mm-hmm. it's easiest sometimes to attack judges, for example. The only successful impeachments in U.S. history are judges, right? I think not, not shockingly. Um, so, David, what would you want normatively if we could get that on the Normatively, table? you know, the most dangerous actors in a constitutional system are executive actors generally, right? right? I mean— you can have a corrupt or even kind of anti-democratic legislative actor. It's not going to be a, a huge threat. Having anti-democratic judges is not good, right? But but the executive, wow. is, I think one thing that I think comes through in a, in a lot of work is the the executive is often a, a core actor, right, in, in the degradation of the system. And yet I think the problem of, of, of control of executive actors is, one of the most difficult puzzles in, in, in all of constitutional design and constitutional theory. I mean, it, you just look at, you know, almost every system, for example, has an impeachment mechanism, but mm-hmm. they're not active uh, typically. And, and a lot of times when they are used, they're used in a way that is plausibly abusive, right, I think. Uh, and so I don't know if there's any solution to that. I mean, or at least an easy one, but it, it does go to the point we started with it. These things aren't outside of the of the system at all, right? And the the risk is that they're gonna they're gonna be deployed by the powerful, basically to to knock out weaker actors. And when you really need them to get rid of a a, a dangerous anti democratic powerful actor, 
they're going to be challenging to deploy. Not impossible, but very hard. Does that mean that we should think about the disqualification, the boundary question in presidential systems as even more pressing than in parliamentary systems or not? I think so. You know, obviously both systems do have disqualification, some of the modes of disqualification we've been talking about, but this leads to the discussion of perhaps term limit, extensions and violations, which have become legion. Once in office, it's really hard to control that power. And this leads, I want to make a comment about the paradox of this whole area. Disqualification works best against the actors who least need it. In other words, if you have a presidential candidate who's saying crazy things and isn't going to win office, or in South Korea, they have this crazy pro-North Korean party that they decide to ban. You know, that party was never going to win a South Korean election. Although they had a few seats. They had a few seats. That's that's exactly the point. But, you know, if the voters of South Korea decide to vote to merge with North Korea, you know, all bets are off anyway. Now, if, you know, this I think is relevant to the Trump discussion, because Trump is not a fringe figure. He's uh, got a huge hold on the Republican Party. And if he is to be banned... Uh, on the basis of the 14th Amendment, does anyone think that's actually going to hurt his support? It might help his support. And then we might have a true constitutional crisis because just because you take him off the ballot doesn't mean he can't win the election as a write-in candidate. So I'm very cautious about it. Um, Disqualification is this, you know, powerful tool, but boy, it's really uh, a complicated one. (laughs) Understanding those complications to try to build some principles around ideal disqualification regimes. Can you lay out what you think key features of an ideal disqualification regime would be? And actually, before before we get to that, I wondered if you think that the organizing ideology, as you think about those features, is militant democracy, because it appears to be, but you're also very critical of the idea of militant democracy. And I think maybe we should tease out a little bit where that stands in thinking about what the ideal disqualification regime should look like. Uh, Those are great questions. I mean, I, I, you know, I think militant democracy, that's kind of post-war German idea, right? God had some of the right stuff. I mean, it was the idea is that the basic idea, right, is you can't trust a a, a liberal democratic system can't just take for granted that everybody playing in the system is going to be kind of deep and basically deep in democracy, right? And it has to kind of police itself and its own... or can you, imagine, can you imagine um, some countries emerging from their dictatorial pasts without the lustration regimes or without a robust disqualification regime? That's a genuine question, not a rhetorical one. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, I think, you know, you look at Eastern Europe and there were a range of choices on lustration. I mean, some places, you know, as Tom mentioned, went pretty pretty hard after people who were you know, affiliated with the old regime, other places didn't do very much um, or they had much softer illustration regimes that like required facts to come out but didn't disqualify people. And I I, I haven't studied in depth, right? But it's to me, it's hard to tell obvious differences between the sort of kind of outcomes of those different kinds of, those different kinds of illustration regimes. How useful is party banning in a fragile democratic system? I don't know, you know? I mean, I think the, Mm The, basically, in Germany, they used the power twice in cases early on uh, to ban kind of a neo-Nazi party and then the Communist Party, right? And then since then, they really haven't used it. And recently, they said basically suggested, well, 
we're going to be more cautious, right, about using this tool essentially uh, going forward. I, I think it's a it's the kind of thing where you know the democratic system. It, it seems to me that these things are plausibly good guardrails. But I will say, having if you go through the examples in the paper, it 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 becomes easier to find what I would consider kind of misuses or abuses of these tools than it is to find ones where you're like, this really works well. Not impossible, right? But 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 difficult. What would a regime look like if it worked? I mean, I think you want to get a clear standard, right? Which is mm-hmm. which is about kind of we suggest sort of a relatively minimalist protection of democracy. Like you don't just want to disqualify people because you think they're in some vague sense not great actors, right? You want to deploy the tool really to prevent democratic degradation. And then, and then, you know, so that's, that's hard to pin down, but then you have mechanism and it's like, look, I think one point that we do show is the legislative route typically doesn't seem to work very well. It doesn't, doesn't get very activated very much. And Mm -hmm. so that leaves like what courts and administrative agencies. So I just want to tease out these two different areas. So first talking about what those kind of clear what that what that minimalist approach looks like in an ideal disqualification let's narrow it to executive disqualification in a presidential system um what are the standards and who's enforcing them yeah maybe i'll jump in on the normative side so in a presidential system obviously term limits is a critical thing and we are supportive of those uh in general we're um not huge fans of militant democracy, at least I'm not, uh, because I really do think this two-edged sword quality leads to the abuse. Might be in the early years, as in the Nazi and Communist Party ban cases in Germany, that's really important. But then the utility may decline over time as the system matures. And Tom, could you describe what you mean by militant democracy? Yeah, great. So militant democracy was an idea developed in the 20s and 30s, um, where, and associated with a German thinker called Karl Lowenstein, who observed that, you know, in order to protect democracy, you might need to deploy some sort of anti-democratic measures. So that would include the ability to ban an anti-democratic party, the ability to limit speech. You know, you might well limit hate speech as kind of a militant democracy uh, provision and such, and other tools just to ensure the integrity of the process. And it was very popular in post-war Europe um, and deployed effectively. But Our reading of this is that when you look at how these things are utilized now, they're not utilized against the most dangerous actors. Uh, Hate speech bans, you know, are tend to be targeted, as we see now with the uh, Palestine speech in Europe, at, you know, relatively fringe players. And maybe that speech should be banned. I don't know. I'm not saying it should or shouldn't. But it's not stopping, let's say, the AFD in Germany, the large right-wing party. Um, and so, there, again, there's this paradox that's most useful against those who may, maybe don't need it. Um, and just to think, return to the question of, like, how would we design something here? One thing I think comes through is that if you're going to ban someone, uh, first of all, it's kind of nice in the U.S. that you have an impeachment and a separate vote because they are separate you know, determinations and the legislature ought to be able to make different determinations. In Brazil, sometimes they do. They'll impeach someone but not ban them from office. And if there is a ban, it should be temporary and not permanent because you want to minimize the, uh, what's the word, the evasion of the democratic principle. Democratic principles, anyone can run. If there's someone who's really, really dangerous, 
all right, let's give them a period or two when they can't run. And by that time, they're probably not going to be a threat. So you want to calibrate the exceptions to the democratic principle very narrowly. And but I'm going to push you a little bit on that. So what are those exceptions? Yeah, well, in our country, they are insurrection. <laughs> trying to overthrow the democratic system, treason, these kind of things. Um, and those do make sense to me. Um, the problem with the 14th Amendment, of course, is we don't really know how it ought to be interpreted. That's a, maybe a separate discussion. But, um, but clearly there are some exceptions and they should be very serious violations, um, very serious evidence that the person is not committed to the ongoing project of rotation in office, which is the central feature. So then we get to the second question, which you've already alluded to, which is, okay, you have a standard. Who, who interprets that standard in an ideal uh, system? I mean, you know, it's interesting. I, I think you have a set of trade-offs, right? I, I, I do think you could give it to a legislature, but I do think the comparative legislature, the comparative evidence suggests they're probably not going to do much with it most of the time. The most active regimes around the world are kind of, they're kind of judicial or administrative, right? They give, they give the power to disqualify to, to some other set of actors that's kind of at least somewhat outside of the political process. Is that a good idea? I don't know, right? I mean, I think um, there was, you know, you, you look back for the short period of time in which Section 3 of the 14th Amendment was actually being enforced in the, in the, in the U S in a serious way. And the, basically Congress passed a kind of a framework law that allowed for a judicial procedure for disqualification. And that was used right until basically Congress acted to uh, lift all of the, all of the disqualifications. You're now arguing that we need a new statute. Yeah. And one question I have about that is, well, why is a statute better than just having judges interpret the 14th Amendment, Section 3? I mean, do you find it plausible or even desirable to enact a statute while we're actually embroiled in uh, litigation around the interpretation of 14th Amendment, Section 3, specifically about Trump, a specific person? Uh, what are the prospects or even dangers of enacting a statute in a specific context like that? You know, I think, it, I mean, in theory, I think it's a good idea to have a statute because yes. the, yeah. the the standards themselves are vague, right, on a number of points. I mean, just, just defining exactly what insurrection means. We know there's there's a lot of lack of clarity that has come through about what the group of people is who would potentially be disqualified, what they would be disqualified from, right? So there's, I think there would be a lot of uh, value in the abstract, Right. So, like, legislative clarification. Now, when we wrote and started thinking about the article was uh, right after January 6th and kind of right after the second impeachment, you know, mm -hmm. and it was in that context that we started to think through these problems. It's obviously pragmatically hard to imagine Congress passing kind of a, a, a well-thought-out statute at the moment, and maybe in its absence, the courts just have to do the best they can with these standards. But, you know, I, I think looking both kind of historically and just kind of at the design of the of the amendment, a, a framework statute would make a lot of sense. The core questions that's both live in this moment, but not just in this moment. What mechanisms within the judiciary? In other words, is it a judicial fact finding premised on a prior case or not premised on a prior case? Is there some 
requirement, and maybe this is culturally specific, but certainly a lot of discussion about this, that there be a jury of peers having made a factual decision. And, and at what standards, you know, at uh, a civil or at a criminal level? Yeah, I mean, that's all questions that a statute would have to answer and why we, I think we do need one. Without one, of course, um, you know, every judge in the country, every Secretary of State, you know, can interpret things differently. So a statute would narrow those things down. And I do think there obviously is a factual, important factual finding here. Um, indeed, I should just say, can you imagine that if the Supreme Court holds that Trump is disqualified or that secretaries of state can do so, can you imagine what secretaries of state and attorneys general in some other states would do to the Democratic candidates? I mean, it's just going to unleash this free-for-all. So we do need some coordination and some national law. And I think there has to be a fact-finding, but it doesn't necessarily have to be a jury if you think about it. In other countries, sometimes you might involve the general prosecutor. Um, there might be, have to be some evidence that has to be presented to a special tribunal that might be made up of, you know, in some countries, the Supreme Court, the Constitutional Court, or a panel of the Constitutional Court, or maybe even involving some legislators. There's lots of ways you can deal with this through institutional design, recognizing the very heavy consequence of getting it, you know, if you got it wrong. And you need the public legitimacy that there's really agreement that this person really does need to be out of there. I thought one of the arguments for having a statute assuming that it's plausible, is that you think that it would be more likely to be accepted as legitimate than, say, the Supreme Court uh, disqualifying Trump, which most people don't think is going to happen. But even if it did, some people think that would actually strengthen Trump's prospects. I mean, it's legitimacy, but it's legitimacy for a reason, because with the statute, you'd have standards everyone could see. It would be more transparent. There's not this fear of, you know, what are we interpreting these words for? You know, is the Amendment self-executing, that has been contested, as you know, and so right. it's legitimacy, but it's legitimacy for a good reason. So we, we've looked a little bit around the world, and what I gather from your comments here and also from your paper and other work is that the puzzle that we're facing, this sort of American puzzle around Trump and disqualification, is not a unique puzzle. It shows up in different ways uh, throughout modern history. Having said that, is there something exceptional about this particular puzzle in this particular moment? Or is this more alike something uh, that we've seen in other countries, the, the disqualification litigation at the highest level uh, in such a high profile um, presidential moment? You know what it reminds me of, and I'll ask you to comment on it, David, is Fujimori in Peru where he gets impeached, he gets jailed, and you know what? He didn't go away. And the whole system, in some sense, has just been a disaster ever since. But at least that's my amateur's view. I don't know what you think. Yeah, no, I think it's tricky. I mean, to me, there's two sides to the question that I do think you see comparatively, right? I mean, one is, and Tom's made this point, you, you, it's hard to get rid of somebody, to disqualify somebody legally that a whole lot of people want to vote for, right? Like, that's... You know, and, and actually one thing that like Turkey springs to mind to me where they kept right. trying to ban uh, this party saying that it was sort of too Islamic, right? And so they used the secularism provision of the Turkish constitution to ban them. But they kept coming back because people, voted people for really them, yeah. wanted to vote for them. And eventually the court by a narrow margin said, no, we're not going to ban you. And that, you know, this has been the dominant party, right, in Turkey ever since. 
So on the other hand, I, I do think there's something to the kind of um, the sort of what we refer to as kind of speed bump idea that sometimes like s- slowing or stopping a movement at, at a given time, you don't know what it's going to do, but it can be critical because this might be the moment, right? And, and, and then it, it depends what happens later. I mean, Fujimori never really goes away. And his family is sort of still there, but he also doesn't return to power. Right. You know, you think about like Colombia, where the, the constitutional court issues a major decision stopping uh, a president, Alvaro Uribe, from running for a third term. And that ends up really mattering, right? Because his, his own person, his, own, his member of his own government wins the election, the next one, and then turns on him, right? So there is this, you know, I, I, I do think that there's so much indeterminacy, right? But... You could argue that this election is a, a, a critical juncture and it's kind of like if he wins, there's so much danger that is posed to democracy, right? Um, that it would be worth trying to prevent that from happening now. The consequences would not be good. But, but you're also suggesting that whether he's disqualified or not, as a political weapon, the disqualification regime can have important political effects. Uh, that may be better for democracy, whether the person's disqualified or not. Is that fair? That's right. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's you know, I, one thing I think we try to say in the paper is it, at least there's the, the possibility, right, that these disqualification regimes could be used to strengthen democracy. That's got to be the idea. I mean, what's unsettling that we find is so often they're not used that way. Or to strengthen democracy without even having to be enforced. That's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, theoretically, having the guardrail there, right, right, should help. There's a deep condition which is driving all this, which is the high degrees of polarization, you know, where you really can't even tolerate the idea that the other side would win an election. And there's a danger that we see the danger as being so great that we then escalate, you know, that both parties escalate and then democracy's over. And so there's some sense in which you have to trust that even the bad actors who seem undemocratic either don't want to or won't be able to take it over. And, you know, that's, that's uh, you know, I know thin gruel <laughs> of comfort, but, um, <laughs> but, you know, there's a self-defeating cycle if you get out of that psychology. I know Julie wants to ask you about predictions on this particular case and, and various impacts, but to your last point, Tom, given rising global polarization, not just domestic polarization, Are you implicitly making a prediction that these kinds of disqualification efforts and variations on impeachment, disqualification, new laws are going to be rising along with rising polarization? I think so. I think we see the trend already and it puts pressure on these regimes and, you know, getting it right is really important. And unfortunately, you know, when we went through our analysis, we spent a lot of time thinking about it. We certainly didn't come up with a universal optimal rule. It's got to be calibrated right. to the local conditions. And that's, that's, uh, that's hard for constitutional designers. So do you have some final thoughts about the Supreme Court case, about the future of disqualification in the United States? Tom, you said that we have thin gruel of comfort. And I wondered, uh, where does that leave us? I don't see them disqualifying uh, Trump categorically. As a matter of federalism, you might imagine when outcomes, they say, well, it's up to individual secretaries of state. But that strikes me as it really would be a bad decision. I don't see that happening. So, um, you know, Sam Moyne argued that it should be 9-0 rejecting the lawsuit. And maybe that is what we'll see. I don't know. Um, Basically, my punchline here is we can't rely on uh, 
the courts to save us from ourselves. You know, judicial accountability is important, but it's not a substitute for political accountability. Um, and again, it's, it's pretty tense uh, when you think about it that way, but I don't really see another way. I agree. I mean, I, it's hard, I can't imagine the court is actually going to uphold a categorical disqualification. I hope, in a sense, they don't do the federalism thing in this case. I actually think that would be the worst of all the outcomes, right? To leave it to leave it state by state. Um, in some sense, I mean, you know, you the kind of the minimalism, right? That that Roberts comes back to from time to time could be dangerous here. I think there needs to be some clarity on this question, essentially, one way, one way or another. The lack of it, the ambiguity actually, in some sense, is a, an enemy of democracy, I think, in this election. You know, if you imagine many different opinions could be one possibility, but it sounds like what you would look for is guidance, <laughs> uh, guidance, interpretive guidance for the future. Uh, I thought it would be the opposite. Just stay out of it. <laughs> Yeah, well, but I think there's a real risk to stay out of it here, right? I mean, I, I I get the I get the point, but I I worry about it because I think the current patchwork is a is a mess, right? I do think it's one of the areas where the, the court almost has to react to what's already going on state by state. And I think the idea that like deep blue states would disqualify Trump it it doesn't make any sense. It's not helpful, right? In in any way, and it just feeds it just feeds this idea that the game is rigged against him, right? Um, which which doesn't seem wise. So I don't know exactly how the court does what I'm suggesting they need to do. I think it's very difficult jurisprudentially, but I do think that's what, what they've got to try to do. I think they have an easy route, which is they go back to that 18, uh, uh, you know, 19th century case, um, Griffin's case. And they just uh, say, yeah. Griffin's case was right. It's not self-executing. Uh, and thus, the other Griffin, the New Mexico County Commissioner who was uh, disqualified, you know, he might get his office back perhaps. But that's probably what they'll do. Well, we'll see. Thank you so much to both of you for writing this article, uh, looking at the law of disqualification all around the world, and joining us today. Thank you. Thanks so much. We'd also like to thank Fordham Law School, especially Dean Matthew Diller and Associate Deans Joe Landau and Jay Lee for supporting this podcast. We're also very grateful to our helpful producers, Melody Rowell and Bill Pollock at Yellow Armadillo Studios. The music for Democracy's Future is Climbing by Chad Crouch, also known as Poddington Bear. Special thanks to Robert Isherian at Fordham Law School for designing our new logo. Please subscribe to Democracy's Future. We're on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon, Simplecast, and wherever you get your podcasts. Spread the word to your students, your neighbors, fellow commuters about Democracy's Future. Thank you very much, and see you next time.